Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, uh, chair of the Humanities Forum, which helped organize tonight's event. The Commonwealth Club, uh, since the pandemic, has been doing uh, well over a thousand programs, I think. Um, And we're very happy now that we're back having live audiences. So welcome back if this is one of your first ones. Uh, since we started bringing audiences back in. Uh, as you can imagine, it was, it was quite something when the city said, okay, uh, everything has to close down. And uh, we did a very interesting thing of, of switching. Uh, we used the live stream equipment that we had for special events for everything that we could do, and it worked out very well. Um, we, we ended up with a big uh, international audience. I don't know if you know, but out of, out of the, uh, on the uh, website, I mean, in the YouTube channel and everything, uh, at the beginning of the uh, pandemic, I think we've been doing it since 2009 or 2007, maybe even putting some some up, and we had five million views and maybe 25 or 30 thousand subscribers, and, and I think we now have over 35 million views and uh, maybe 200 thousand subscribers, and about about 40 percent of the audience uh, is actually outside the United States that we have now. So, um, so if you're members and you're supporting this, uh, this is this is what's going on. We it's, it's uh, we've accidentally ended up with a much bigger audience uh, than we had before. So tonight, <laughs> tonight we have Roger Repopor here to speak about his novel about Patty Hearst, um, and uh, it's it's fascinating because, uh, well, I'm going to let you you explain it. You you think that the novel is going to get you closer to the truth of the story than, than the facts. Well, as you know, uh, two people are in the same room and come out with completely different versions of what happened. It's a little hard for a journalist to decide what to do. And obviously you talk to both of them and historians mm-hmm. do the same thing. Uh, in a novel, you don't have that problem. Uh, essentially, you come to the point where you realize, okay, so there were nine people in this 1,200-square-foot uh, house in Daly City, and after it was over and six of them died in a firefight with the Los Angeles police, and uh, one of them uh, became a movie star and was writing 400-page books and so on and got to work with Paul Schrader and was winning dog shows, and another one went to prison for all this time. There's a lot of differences of opinion about what really happened in that safe house. Um, and needless to say, uh, when you do fiction – um, you can make an educated guess, which mm-hmm. is sort of what historians do. But I, I want to use this one very important point because it came up today. I have a piece running on Sunday in the Washington Post, and the editor asked a very good question about a line uh, that I put in, which is that after she wrote her book, Paul Schrader, who, who could ask for a bigger director than that for a Patty Hearst movie, mm-hmm. which, I, by the way, I went to see with Bill Harris when it opened here in San Francisco in 19. We'll have to explain who Bill Harris is. Bill Harris was her kidnapper. And we'll, yeah. we'll explain. <laughs> Bill Harris was the guy that kidnapped Patty Hearst um, with, for the Sibian Liberation Army. So when they made the movie, Paul Schrader took the book, the true story, and finished the movie. And then, and then Patty looked at the script and said, what's going on here? He said, the ending, it's not in my book. It never happened. What are you doing? And he said, well, the, your ending doesn't work. <laughs> she said, what do you mean? My, she said, what you, literally, what, what do you mean my ending doesn't work? She said, nobody will believe it. You know, you've got to have an ending that people can buy into, right? So this is the problem <laughs> where the fact, and to make it even worse, her fiancé, Steve Weed, this is the guy who met her when she was a 16-year-old junior at Crystal Springs School for Girls, now the Crystal Springs Upland School. Some of you may have heard of it. A uh, very prestigious school. Um, Steve was her math teacher. And uh, I had the opportunity to write a story about him. Uh, and uh, that led to a book contract with Ballantine Books. And we, I was on page 275 when he walked into my house where he'd been staying for four months as my house guest and dining with my wife. And he said, this isn't working. I said, what do you mean it isn't working? He said, well, a lot of the stuff that's in here is too personal. <laughs> and I said, well, the reason why you got this big book contract is, guess what, um, that the publisher is hoping that you would tell the truth and not leave anything out. And he said, well, you know, I, I can't I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously, if Patty were to come back uh, after she had dumped him literally on a communique, this was after she decided to join the Cybernetics Liberation Army. 
Um, but if for some reason she came back and there's this book talking about how he helped her cheat on a geometry class by stealing the final mm. from the geometry teacher's file cabinet, uh, which he used every year for the same thing, mm. um, that could get him in a lot of trouble. Plus that line where Patty's going to Atlanta with her mother and um, her mother's using the N-word and this and that all over Atlanta on a roots tour. Yeah. Well, how's that going to look? The Hearst are going to be mad at him. So it's called strategic commission. So there you go. <laughs> well, I think one of the more ironic, funny things in, in the whole story, uh, not a, that funny of a story, um, is his name. I mean, the boyfriend's name is Steve Weed. You know? Well, that was another problem. I mean, how, how much better can you get for a 70s story? You know? Yeah, well, he was flying cross-country. By the way, he graduated first in his class at Palo Alto High School. Pretty good, huh? Yeah. And then he became a drug dealer. Uh, <laughs> and he flew cross-country to Princeton where he went to school. He turned Harvard down, by the way. Decided he had to go to Princeton, and uh, one of the earlier ones because Princeton outdoes yeah. you know Harvard sometimes. Yeah, now, and he was a track star, and he was also a drug dealer. Yeah, yeah, and he didn't want that in the book. <laughs> so after that book fell apart, and he went off and wrote a much more favorable book to himself, and I, my book never was published. I had a wonderful opportunity to uh, meet Patty's kidnapper, uh, Bill Harris, mm -hmm. and uh, did a very long interview with him for the Oakland Tribune, the first long interview mm -hmm. uh, that Bill did. Uh, was published in the in the Tribune, uh, and his side of the story is a little different mm -hmm. than Patty's, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Patty claimed in court when she was arrested for robbing the Hibernia Bank after she joined the kidnappers uh, that she had been badly abused and so on. And Bill said, "No, that wasn't true. There were five strong women mm -hmm. in the SLA, and no way mm -hmm. that could have happened with these feminists there." Mm -hmm. So there you go. So the point of the book is yeah. to give everybody equal time. Yeah. which is what historians do. And then the reader gets to decide who's actually uh, the most believable. All right. Person. So as far as believable goes here, you have little notes as if Steve Weed was commenting on all the different chapters. Now, I take it that that's a fictional uh, element. That, well, here, yeah. here's the funny thing. Uh, there's, a, there's a man here tonight that has an article that I wrote about Steve uh, that I published. Maybe you could hold that up. Okay, this is the story of my collaboration with Steve. And in the book... Every chapter uh, in the book has notes from Steve, as if Steve had read the book and he's commenting on my new book. Well, the notes he wrote for real on the real book, which some of which are quoted in that article, were much more blistering than what I put in my novel. He really yeah. came after me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He wanted me to do an outline and stop and delay. And, of course, the publisher is trying to get the book out. Right. Um, as you can imagine. So that didn't work. Yeah. So those were those were your... Fictional. Fictional version of it. Fictional version. I thought that was of the book. Very funny. The first three, I thought, oh, that's very interesting. And then the next, there was one that said, oh, no, no, Roger's making this up. <laughs> very cleverly, I have yeah. to say. Uh, because you didn't just have him agree with you all the time. No. I mean, a, a, a worse author would have made sure that every one of his comments was how brilliant Roger. Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> no, he was ripping the book. <laughs> for Lynn, you know. All right. So... So let's talk a little bit about your experience as a reporter and how you got pulled into the Patty Hearst uh, kidnapping. Well, first, for New Times, I wrote stories for them. Then I went on to cover uh, for the Hearst Herald Examiner the beginning of the trial. Uh, then I interviewed, uh, as you know, uh, Steve for the book. Uh, and then later I interviewed Bill Harris. Mm -hmm. I also interviewed the coroner, Tom Noguchi, who's best known for autopsying Marilyn Monroe, mm -hmm. uh, Bobby Kennedy, Janis Joplin and the six SLA members who were burned alive in a, the largest firefight on American soil in mm -hmm. uh, 2000. It was in 1975 mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. Uh, and, they, and at the time that they were exhuming the bodies and autopsying, they didn't know if Patty Hearst was one of the victims. Or mm -hmm. So well, how that, long did it take before they figured that was one of my questions? In, oh, in, in, this is in reality. Not it took several days, and the families were all down there trying to figure out right. if they had lost a loved one or not, right. Patty being one of them, of course. Right. Um, so tell us a little bit about Bill Harris and his wife and their relationship with Patty because, uh, Bill almost came tonight, right? Almost. Yeah. He wasn't feeling well. Yeah. Um, he, he would have been here, but he was, he wasn't feeling well. I have been talking to Bill the last few weeks. Um, and, uh, basically Bill was a Vietnam vet who enlisted in the SLA. They actually had a test to get him in. He, he was out. Uh, leafleting for the United Farm Workers mm -hmm. and uh, 
uh, Joseph Romero, another one of the SLA members, was uh, out campaigning for Bobby Seale. And they met in front of Safeway. And he said, how would you like to join this new group, you know, called the SLA? He said, well, I don't know. What's that all about, you know? So they blindfolded him and took him to meet Donald DeFries, the escaped convict who founded the SLA, and the only black member mm -hmm. of the group. Mm -hmm. And he passed the test. Uh, he was a very, very uh, disciplined uh, revolutionary. He'd, he'd gotten his training in, the, in, in Vietnam. Right. Uh, and his wife, uh, Emily, uh, they had met at uh, the University of Indiana, where several of the other SLA members came from, notably Angela Atwood. Mm -hmm. Angela Atwood was the woman who knocked on the door of the apartment mm -hmm. on February 4th, uh, the 50th anniversary being this Sunday, and said she was having car trouble and could she use the phone. Mm -hmm. um, she yeah. was an actress, acted yeah. here, in fact. Um, and um, so they came out. That wasn't her acting audition? No. Knocking on the door, pretending no. to use the phone. Yeah. Right. So that's how they kind of got involved. Yeah. But unfortunately, the SLA was getting very bad press at the beginning, as you know, because they assassinated the much-loved uh, superintendent of Oakland schools, and it was a disaster in every way possible. So they decided maybe they should cool it. They made a, they made a list up of who, who would be a better candidate for kidnapping. They figured that would be a good way to get money. Hmm. and some notoriety, but they wanted to pick somebody really big. One of the candidates on the list was Raymond Percunier, the head of the Department of Corrections of the state of California. You can imagine how stupid that would have been. <laughs> First of all, who's going to ransom him? Right. <laughs> the, pri the prisoners. <laughs> the head of the Department of Corrections. <laughs> Take him away. <laughs> so anyway, they found Patty's engagement announcement with Stephen. They thought, perfect, you know, uh, we'll get a lot of money. And then we can inspire other kidnappings. But the problem was the FBI, the governor, the attorney general, and everybody else, all the hostage consultants, told Randy Hearst, no way. If you do that, there'll be more kidnappings. They're going to be bombing San Simeon. Oh, my God. They actually did bomb San Simeon during her bank robbery trial. As you know, she joined the SLA and robbed the Hibernia Bank. So that wasn't as remote an idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what Randy did is he worked back channel as best he could, going to prison, trying to find people who knew the SLA guys, trying to get them to write letters, mm -hmm. saying, you know, you should let her go. Yeah. So uh, we're going to bounce around a little bit. You brought up one of the things that they tried was they were told if they would release her, uh, Randy, that is, was told. Right. If, if they donated a whole bunch of money to poor people for food. And, and in, your, in your novel, you cover it quickly. What kind of a mess was that? I mean, it sounded like a terrible. And was it just a bureaucratic mess? And, and well, the SLA the responsibility kept, was kept that? escalating the demands. First of all, there were there was a riot that mm. didn't help yeah. over the food. Then the food wasn't very good. Then they didn't give out enough food. Then they wanted more food. Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, meanwhile, when they asked for more money, the Randy said, well, you know, I'm part of a corporation. It's not really my money. It belongs to the company. Mm -hmm. At this point, she's kind of losing heart because mm -hmm. she knew that it was a billion-dollar company. Obviously, you could have taken out a bank loan, right, $4 million mm -hmm. or whatever. But the other members of the corporation were very reluctant to uh, appease these people because who's next in the kidnapping list, right? right? Could be another member. By the way, I want to interrupt and say something categorically because the way these events go, you forget something you really want to say. I want to say this categorically. Uh, Patty Hearst is a mom. She's a grandmother. And I guarantee you that if tonight one of her grandchildren were kidnapped, she would write the check on the spot. Yeah. And that's what her dad didn't do. Mm -hmm. uh, and she never basically forgave him during this whole process because she couldn't figure out why he wouldn't just write the check and bring her home knowing that he had the uh, access to money, even if it didn't come from the Hearst Corporation. Mm -hmm. And remember, he was uh, doing everything he could short of paying these, you know, the ransom. He, he did mm -hmm. do some of it, right. but they wanted more, and he just, he, he said no. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's tough in the personal situation. I'm sure that right now there's this hostage situation in Israel. And, and, exactly. And, and what do you do about it? I mean, how, do you reward them? Do you not reward them? But, or, or do you just exactly. say, do you take... Is it, is it most important to get the hostages back? And well, as a historian, yeah. bringing up Israel uh, brings up a very good point, which mm -hmm. is, of course, there was a war in the Middle East going on during this time, mm -hmm. um, which is pretty interesting. There was an energy crisis. Uh, Watergate was going on. Um, so there was that. There were a lot of things happening in the country. Um, and in fact, this story, it's hard, still hard to believe it. It actually knocked Watergate off the front page. Mm -hmm. you know, what? Who would have thought? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. 
well, it was it, it, it was a, of a piece of the stuff that was going on in the late '60s and everything. People being killed, famous people. So it like hit a nerve, and uh, you know, it's one of those nerves of a beautiful young woman being uh, stolen uh, that 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 always does the same sort of. It's, it it kind of goes deep into the to the memories of people and, now, and, and their fears. Now, in my conversation with Bill Harris this week, I asked him point blank. I said, okay, so did Patty really write those communiques? And he, he, you know what he said? He said, we couldn't have written that. He said, mm-hmm. she was better than we were. Yeah. <laughs> she was more articulate. I said, how is that possible? I mean, you guys were, you know, the revolutionary. Yeah. She was just this woman who'd just been with you for weeks, and suddenly she's spouting this incredible attack on the power structure, talking about women's rights, the Black Lives Matter. Uh, they even talked about automation, putting people out of work. And you yeah. imagine that. Right, right. And this was way, way before, you know, AI and all that. And I said, well, but where did all this come from? Well, obviously they were reading stuff to her and so forth. Mm-hmm. But she lived it. She was part of it. She knew it. Mm-hmm. So for her, it was like really easy to to visualize what what, what they were talking about. They, they were middle class, uh, except, except for Willie Wolf, the guy she fell in love with. Remember, she fell in love with one of the kidnappers. Okay, Two of them, actually. Steve Celia was the second one mm-hmm. who she was uh, involved with when she was captured here a year later. Um and she she dumped Steve Weed as kind of a sexist pig, you know. She paid the rent. She did the shopping at Safeway, mm-hmm. walking through by the way United Farm Worker picket lines. Right, she did it. Yeah, uh, she cooked the meal. She made the bed, and he just showed up. Right, you know, right at right. dinner time, you know. So she had this feminist attack on him. So she was incredibly articulate. If you go back and read her communiques, the, the ones she wrote, particularly the eulogy for Willie Wolf. Um, you will see that a lot of what she's talking about resonates with what you're, what mm-hmm. you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And let's talk about Willie Wolf for a little while. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, the official version and so on. What, what, in her official version, when she wrote it, did she say she was a willing lover of her? Or, or has that come from others around? Well, until the trial, yes. Yeah. yeah. No, she wrote that Willie was the sweetest, most gentlest man she'd ever known. Right. And according to Bill... Again, who I talked to this week, it was real. I mean, they they just hit it off right from the beginning. And he was the guy that read Marx's tracks to her when she was still blindfolded. Mm-hmm. They didn't want her to ID them until they felt a little more. Well, they thought they were going to get the money, so they they weren't. They figured they'd take the blindfold off and she'd go. You know, and they'd walk away with four million dollars. That was a lot of money. A lot better than robbing the Hibernia Bank. That only got them ten thousand. Yeah. Um- one element in your novel I found interesting. It was near the end. Um, but you, you sort of hinted that she already knew Willie Wolf. Right. Is, is, is there any basis for that choice? Or, or you, did it, it makes the story clear. I understand that. But, but, um, and why she would do what she would do, and et cetera. Well, but but uh, what, you, what was your basis? Putting for? on the nonfiction hat. Yeah. Okay, yeah. just for a second. Just for a second. Not, not being the novelist. Um, first of all, he lived in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Second of all, um, they were the, the same age, and it is conceivable to me that she actually had met him mm-hmm. prior to this. Right. I don't think they were necessarily involved, right. but I have a feeling she she could have known at least who he was no, as yeah. he was around. Yeah. So that's that's a possibility. Good. Okay. So Patty goes through this experience, um, and she's in public view, joins them. Robs banks, doesn't shoot anybody, but no. shoots off her gun, uh, you know, and, and protects them and helps them escape and has opportunities to escape but doesn't. Now, that's, that's been true for a lot of people since then, obviously, that have been kidnapped, that they, they've had opportunities. They might have been able to get away, but they, you know, they were too intimidated to get away mm-hmm. so and so forth. So what's, your, what's your, your take on this is that she was willing in the novel. And, and your... Uh, nonfiction hat says, I don't know, basically. So why did you choose to, to decide that she probably was a willing person for the, the story that you told? Well, in terms of her staying w- with the SLA, yeah. I think it's obvious that after they gave her a gun and said, you can walk, she had more choices than the average kidnapping victim. Mm-hmm. Not the average kidnapping victim doesn't get a gun mm-hmm. and told she can walk anytime mm-hmm. she wants to go. Mm-hmm. So that really clouded her defense uh, in the trial for the bank robbery. 
Um, the other thing that really hurt her badly was Willie Wolf because she had an Olmec stone carving, I'm sorry, a wood carving in her purse that he'd given her that he was wearing a matching one of on a necklace. So when that showed up in the trial, that sort of really uh, confused the jury greatly. Uh, and you mentioned some of the opportunities she had. One of the best opportunities she had, she was hiking right down south of here in San Mateo Coast. And uh, the rangers came and said, oh, yeah, you can't get up that cliff. We'll help you. No, no, I'm fine. I can do it, you know. Mm. No, 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 we're going to help you. They said, put down a sling. They bring her up from the bottom of this cliff. She's standing there talking to two park rangers. How about, hi, I'm Patty Hurst. Right. Take me away. Yeah, right. right. That hurt her really badly in the trial, really, really badly. And she didn't even have, the Harrises weren't there. Right. Right. Hank, maybe you you can answer this question. This is my friend Hank Massey. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of debate about... um, can you give him a mic? Yeah. This is my friend Hank Massey, who's an adolescent uh, psychiatrist from UCSF. Hank, can you explain the difference between brainwashing and Stockholm syndrome? I think the audience would like <laughs> would like to know about that. Can you help us out? No, there's so many different shades. You know, there's brainwashing. There's the Stockholm syndrome. There's indoctrination. There's identification with your captor, and mm-hmm. one, you know imperceptibly shades into the other. Right. Uh, and uh, nobody really knows what happened inside Patty Hearst's uh, head. Um, you know, she uh, had extensive psychological testing as part of her defense. Can you mention Margaret Singer? The, the, she could, uh, was her psychiatrist. Yeah. Uh, Roger is saying that uh, an eminent psychologist named Margaret Singer from Berkeley and UC Berkeley was called by the defense to psychologically kind of develop a personality profile to try to figure out what actually went on in Patty's head. Mm -hmm. And um, Margaret Singer has passed away, but I did have a chance to hear Margaret Singer talk two or three years after the events. And Margaret Singer basically said Patty was a normal person. Mm -hmm. She was not a very complicated person. And Margaret Singer wouldn't go any further than that. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly how the the psychological testing was treated during the trial. Perhaps you know more than I do. Um, But it's really impossible to distinguish between all those different shades of... um, of what happened inside her head. Sometimes when people are kidnapped into strange circumstances like this, they just kind of throw up their hands and shrug their shoulders and think, well, if this is the way life's going to be, I'm going to go along with it Mm -hmm. and make the best of it until it's all over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think one of the interesting things that you point out in the book, too, but, but not in that context, is that... You know, her relationship with Steve Weed, who was, you know, 12 years older or something like that than she was, mm-hmm. um, was um, traditional. And in, in her family, um, other than a relationship with her sister, she didn't have close relationships. Mm-hmm. And so at a very young age, she was picking a close relationship with a, a teacher. Well, you, you hit on a very key point, yeah. which my wife pointed out to me yesterday. For a woman at 16 to fall in love with a teacher... That old, he's way too old. Most girls yeah. in that school wouldn't want to be connected to a guy that old. Right, you know? right, right, right. You know, he's in his tw- mid 20s. My God, you know, yeah. what are you doing? You know, yeah. but she obviously felt strongly about uh, this and his older friends. She got a little tired of it. She finally said to him one day, and this is in my article in New Times. Uh, he, she said, God, I wish I met you 10 years later, you know. Was, yeah, yeah. You know, I've missed all these experiences. You got to go out with all these women, have all this fun, and I'm I'm basically stuck here with you, you know, <laughs> for life. You know, I don't get to have all the adventures you had. She was kind of saying, you know, you yeah. date all kinds of people. But here's something really interesting. You mentioned the family. You mentioned she had one relationship prior to Steve and then uh, when she was in private school, right. when she was 14. And then after Steve, of course, there's Willie Wolf, And then there's Steve Salaya, who she was uh, intimately involved with at the time she was uh, arrested. And then after that, of course, F. Lee Bailey, another white male mm-hmm. uh, guy, was sort of helping her craft her story, so to speak. And then 
Finally, she married her bodyguard. And again, I want to I want to tell this story before I, I let it go. So her bodyguard, Bernard Shaw, was an F, SF policeman. And when she began dating, he was there at the top of the mark when she was going out on, on you know, dates, having a drink. He would sit at the other table to make sure nobody would attack her. Or right, right, like right. Then they had a she found him a divorce lawyer, George Martinez, who became her lawyer, too. And, she, and he divorced his wife and, two, mm-hmm. you know, left his two children to marry her. Anyway, after it all ended, she got out of jail. Uh, 22 months and she was convicted for seven years for the bank robbery and after 22 months she was pardoned by president carter and she and um uh bernie shaw got a couple of guard dogs and the judge who sentenced her uh not the trial judge but the the judge who sentenced her uh, was named uh Oric. and you know how when you have attack dogs, you're very careful. You know, you use a very special word because mm. you don't want the dogs to just attack randomly. You know, mm. they, they want to pick a, a one of a kind word that no one would ever use. And the attack command for the dogs was Oric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the trial judge used to passed away. Or the yeah. Trial judge oh, by the way, then... before you forget, a lot of people have asked this question. Lorna Garano is here today. Uh, she's been working with us on the book with my publisher is in the back mm-hmm. kind of hiding. Poor guy. <laughs> Came all the way from Chicago. Lorna and I worked on an article together about well, the question of whether or not Patty, there was a, you know, did she get any kind of privilege? Was there any consideration? This was Lorna's idea. You know, you really need to answer this question. Was she treated differently than another defendant? And and, uh, and I wrote this article saying basically yes. But here's something that didn't make the article. Um, where has it been published? Some China Rammer? Uh, Com- what's the name of it? Oh, it's on the website, right? Pattyhurst.com. But anyway, in this story, we talk about all the things. That, but I found out after I wrote the story, and this is a, an amazing reporter named Lacey Fosberg. Some of you remember Lacey. Mm-hmm. She worked for the New York Times. Just an incredible reporter. She went and interviewed uh, the first judge in the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, uh, this is really Judge Carter. And um, he said to her, yeah, I know Patty from since she was a little girl. I'm a friend of Randy. Everybody knows Randy, you know. And she said, "Well, did you did you do anything to help him?" No, no, no. Straight up and down. We don't, we're not going to do it. Well, what about the jury? Well, yeah, the jury selection. What do you mean? Well, we had to do it in private. Oh, really? Yeah. So how did you do that? Well, you know, we didn't want to have these people exposed to the public. You know, they could get hurt. All this terrorism. And by the way. All the Hearsts were there, not just her parents. The Hearst family was there when they were picking the jury. Have you ever heard of anything? I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty amazing story. Yeah, that's it's also, yeah. yeah. Of, of course, we did everything exactly the normal way, but except for that one. Except little, for that one little, little hit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we let the family sit in on the private panel to select the jury. And it didn't work, by the way. She lost the case. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you said, you, you, you gave a lot of evidence, uh, as there was at the trial, that sort of made it clear that she was at least somewhat willing. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit more about um, her running. So after the six people in the SLA got killed and burned in, in uh, Los Angeles, they weren't there because they were out shopping. That's right. Yeah. And during that shopping expedition in Inglewood, where I lived as a kid, by the way, mm-hmm. not too far from where our house was, uh, Bill Harris uh, was arrested or attempted to be arrested. He was basically tackled by security guards. And Patty was across the street, fired off 27, I think uh, two dozen rounds from a semi-automatic, saved his life. And then they had to dun- ditch the vehicle, the van, and they got another vehicle. They carjacked a 17-year-old. Patty's first kidnapping. She kidnapped a high school student. Mm-hmm. And she was very kind. He, Tom Matthews was his name. And he said afterward, oh, she was just wonderful. You know, she really had empathy. She understood. She told him that she'd been having dreams of being kidnapped. She rubbed his back. He said he really was, she couldn't have been nicer. And he, he was sure that she understood what it felt like. <laughs> and, uh, and then finally, uh, it was time to let him go because they had to get carjack somebody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, after they had, they had uh, decided it was time for him to go. And uh, at that moment, she gave him a big kiss, and off he went. Uh, that, by the way, was very damaging testimony uh, in the terms sure. of okay. yeah. So after that moment, they decided to go to a motel in Anaheim because they couldn't go back to the safe house because guess what? The safe house was hot because they had left a parking ticket 
on the windshield and the police got the van that they abandoned after the shootout mm. and went and um, mm. yeah. so they turned down the television at a motel across the street uh, from Disneyland and guess what there was a shootout at that point they had to leave and of course Bill and Emily were hot so they got Jack Scott who was the head of the Institute for Sports and Society a sports journalist and he posed as Patty's husband and his parents went with them and drove cross-country, posing as the in-laws. And they spent the night together in motels, checking in as Mr. Mm. and Mrs. Scott. And then Jack Scott took care of basically setting her up in Pennsylvania and New York and so on. And then eventually she came back and robbed, was involved in two bank robberies in Sacramento before finally being arrested here in September of 75. After her book came out, you can imagine how Jack Scott reacted when she tore him to shreds in the book mm -hmm. for all kinds of reasons. And he actually filed a lawsuit. So when you talk about two people being in the same room, they mm -hmm. went cross country in the same car mm -hmm. and lived together for months and had completely different versions of the, of the story. One of the oddest pieces in this thing, and I don't know whether you made it up or not, uh, not odd in a bad way, but unusual is that they were in a, a like a theatrical company on a on a on a ferry I mean on a boat yeah. on the Mississippi River for a while well and they and then they performed then right. while they were on the run and then they performed in public uh, when you're hiding you know that's it's James a, and I shot a, mis a movie on the Mississippi called Water Walk huh. which is part of where this story came from yeah. but believe it or not Angela Atwood was a serious actress not a great actress but she acted in Indiana she mm -hmm. acted here mm -hmm. um, and. Um, you know, she'd been in Ibsen plays and so on. So there was a theatrical side to what they were doing. Mm -hmm. um, Patty obviously was not an actress, but became one. Mm -hmm. uh, the Pope of Trash, John Waters, has cast her repeatedly. Mm -hmm. um, and her daughter, one of her daughters, has played Abigail Folger. Folger Coffee, right here? Mm -hmm. One of the victims of the Manson murders. Mm -hmm. Actually played that role in a, a film about the Mansons. So mm -hmm. kind of an interesting uh, connection. Yeah. So you're saying that... that you use that Angela Atwood thing to idea that to kind of create that. really what a great story. Yeah. It's like, like, but Angela was a serious actress. Yeah. Uh, her husband, Gary Atwood beat out Kevin Klein for the role of Hamlet. Uh, and, uh, she also was a close friend of Jane Pauley's Angela and Jane Pauley at one point was being harassed in a room during a party and she broke into the room and saved Jane Pauley from this guy who was a predator. Huh? Interesting story. Wow. Yeah. So she was a very fascinating, you know, character. Yeah, you know, the, just the cast of characters uh, could keep you busy in this novel. I mean, you have like forty or fifty characters. You lay it all up right. front, and and uh, you you pull it in. But you you really give each of the characters from the SLA Army um, room to to to. Well, one of the big say shine, but at least show off. One of the big problems with the SLA, obviously, is they're not available. Six of them, mm -hmm. uh, Willie Wolf in particular, uh, to tell their side of the story. So one of the most surprising things to me is the number of young people that I've met who are not just fascinated but writing term papers about this case, um, getting, you know, contacted. I, I was at a historical society in San Luis Obispo, and the intern there from Cal Poly mm -hmm. was doing her term paper on Patty Hearst. <laughs> and I've been trying to figure out what is the lasting thing about this, and it's the ambiguity of the case. And we have some, you know, Kevin Fagan's here tonight. He's one of my, my favorite reporters. If you don't know Kevin Fagan... Uh, Sunday, just pick up the Chronicle because he has the, the lead piece on this story. Mm -hmm. Kevin and I go back to the Tribune, and he actually has a book coming out on, on homeless on, on a homeless family. Is that right? Is it homeless? To, yeah. Mm -hmm. And Kevin and I go all the way back. And if you read, um, he does a lot of 50-year-old stories, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he just did the Lindbergh story, which has also had incredible, uh, uh -huh. incredible response, right? Uh, and I, part of it is that... that it's the ambiguity. It's people realizing there isn't one place mm. as a historian you would you, know, you can land. Yeah. Not a place you can land. Yeah. And so by opening up all these opportunities for people to come to their own conclusions, and I've read books I, that seem to me to be pretty hard to believe. But one of them is I get asked about repeatedly is, so Patty Hearst actually knew Donald DeFries and was sleeping with him at Vacaville in conjugal housing. Okay. Well, <laughs> under an assumed name. I mean – it's an interesting book. I'm not sure that I buy any of it, but it is interesting to get all these yeah. different points of view. This is the, that kind of stuff reminds me of fan fiction, right? <laughs> you know, that, that that becomes so popular with the internet. But it, but when you read a cross section of all this, you realize ultimately the reader has to decide 
you know, what part of the story they believe. One thing I want to mention is the incredible reporting from the beginning on this story, and it's gotten even better, mm-hmm. how much great writing there was here in the Bay Area right. covering. The coverage was unbelievably great. Um, you know, so many great books came out of it and so on. And that's great for younger people because they can sift through all these conflicting accounts and learn that you never want to take any one person's word for anything. I mean, when Kevin does a story, he talks to everybody, right? I mean, you get even the right. And that's really what it comes down to. And that the advance of journalism, um, you know, um, Kathleen Rollins is here tonight um, from Bay City News. And, you know, they have all these reporters covering the Bay Area um, and their job is to listen to. Not just to the police side of the story or the family side, but to talk to the coroner and everybody that you can possibly talk to. And that's what historians do. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Now, the question, I have a political aside for you. Do you think that it was better when people just said, oh, that historian or that authority and his point of view, that's the facts. That's true history. That was what really happened versus the nuance that we have today because it seems like this nuance has, has invaded politics um, in a way that people, the politicians seem to say, well, you know what? We can really say whatever we want to because that's just a point of view. No, so there's no, fa- there's, there's no common facts anymore. So um, I, I, I'm, I, I'm personally not in favor of just pretending that the authorities knew what they were talking about. But it is interesting that one of the side effects of becoming more nuanced and reasonable and rational about this is that is that then a whole another group of people pushes it farther like any like any good uh, uh, endeavor on the part of uh, society trying to make something better in civilization there's always a group that's going to use that the law as a club this as a as a, something that they can do to do for their thing so what do you think about well that? i think as a historian yourself hmm. you know you know i think you know the answer which is that all these side comments, a lot of them, uh, and this is what happened to Patty in her trial. She had a lawyer who tried that. He tried what you're talking about. It absolutely failed mm-hmm. in front of a jury. And they had everything going for them, right? Mm-hmm. It failed because the, the facts that she had this love token from the guy that she claimed had actually, she didn't really love him. Mm-hmm. He had really attacked her, but she was forced to claim that she was in love with this guy. Mm-hmm. So why is she carrying this Olmec carving in her purse mm-hmm. that he happens to have a matching one? Mm-hmm. But that did not go over very well with the jury. So yeah, a lot of yeah. those kinds of uh, speculations, I think, are really, 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 really difficult. The other thing is um, the quality of, uh, I had to fact check something today. I told a story today about Patty Hearst and the end of the, the movie, right? And my editor said to me, um, okay, so how do we know this is true, that Paul Schrader really did change the ending? I was sitting at lunch, <laughs> and I didn't, for some reason, I didn't bring the book that was the source by a, by a guy, University of Chicago Press, pretty good. Mm-hmm. But I went on, I was sitting at lunch with my laptop, my iPad, and I, I Googled the book, and I couldn't get it online because it was only in print. So I went to Google Books, <laughs> and what Google does is they, they do three or four chapters of a book, and then you have to buy the rest of it, right? Mm. One of the chapters that had the Patty Hearst part of the book mm. was there with the exact citation, the exact quote. Mm-hmm. I sent it to my editor at the Washington Post. That's what I'm talking about, the yeah. level of scholarship now. Yeah. You know, yeah. He had perfect citation. It was an academically sourced right, book. Right, right, right. But I think Hank really hit it on the head. There's so much ambiguity about all this. You know, mm-hmm. when you try to paint a picture of somebody being brainwashed, mm-hmm. it's really hard to, mm-hmm. you know, to make that case. Yeah. It's really, really difficult. Unless they're in a political party that you don't like. Um, that's the perfect definition of being brainwashed. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. It is, a, it is a problem in politics. Yeah. I want to add one other point. Uh, one comment that you're not going to hear uh, this week, we know this for a fact, is from the Hearst family. And that's another problem. When people don't want to talk, they've just decided 50 years is long enough and they're, mm-hmm. they're going to let it go. So I, I can pretty much guarantee you that on Sunday, the anniversary, the 50th anniversary, there's not going to be a, a 60 Minutes interview with the Hearst family. Mm-hmm. And that's too bad. We'd, I'd really like them to answer some of these questions mm-hmm. that we've been talking about tonight. I know you're going to ask some questions. I wish they were here, somebody from the family who could give an official, quote, response. That'd be nice. It's interesting. We'll go to the questions right now, but the, it's very interesting. Uh, people who are in charge of the legacy of a family or the reputation of a family or 
like uh, the people that were in charge of Cesar Chavez's mm-hmm. reputation or a particular writer's reputation, sometimes try to squelch all information that they don't like. And that almost always causes more problems than it's worth, especially in our society today where you know, people are all sharing what nobody ever shared before on a daily basis with everybody else. So uh, it really makes it look clearly uh, inaccurate. That you're hiding something, right? And and usually when people think you're hiding something, they think you're hiding something much worse than what you're actually hiding. The 400-page book that Patty wrote, which I enjoyed, it was really fascinating what she had to say. She's a hell of a reporter, mm-hmm. and she had a great memory, and it helped her get the pardon with Bill Clinton. By the way, that was one of Bill Clinton's his final act. His last two hours, he pardoned his brother and Patty Hearst mm-hmm. in 2001, just as he was leaving office. And I'm sure her book and the film helped advance that. Mm-hmm. But once she got pardoned. There wasn't really the motivation right, to right. keep doing Playboy interviews and Larry King and all the media because she, you know, pretty much told her side of the story. She'd won. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so I imagine that nobody has any questions, right? But we'll, okay. So uh, if, raise your hand and we'll we'll start taking questions from you. Is the guy specializing in other fifty-year-old crimes? <laughs> <laughs> I had, I profiled Margaret Singer uh, uh, years ago. She was a feisty thing, you know. She br- brought out a bottle of Bushmills whiskey and, drank right. it on the t- and said, "We're drinking this if you're talking to me." Anyway, she mentioned Patty Hearst and said that she, she did do a report, but it was tossed out. Right. And she tended to believe that Patty had been coerced, but just to close the loop, yeah. they didn't use her stuff. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's what she sold me. Wow. So it didn't fit the narrative. What was her relationship uh, like with her family after the trial? Uh, That question comes up everywhere I go. And the answer is they paid for her defense. They got rid of the Hallinans. Everybody knows who the Hallinans were, Terrence Hallin and Pat, you know, um, and it's Vincent. Uh, They got rid of this leftist law firm. They brought in F. Lee Bailey, um, you know, uh, Sam Shepard. You know, he'd won a lot of big cases. He worked on the O.J. case later and so on. So they, they got rid of this leftist local law firm. They brought in a hotshot attorney. Uh, and um, the family insisted that, you know, they wanted a higher quality lawyer. Uh, and she, she hated Bailey. She was furious at him. Uh, so that was a stress. But the, the big thing was, although she got along with her family, her parents did not get along with each other and ultimately got divorced. Uh, there was a big debate over the ransom. So it was, a, it was tricky. Yeah. Fortunately, Bernard Shaw, you know, she was safe. So that was a really good thing. And by the way, he became head of corporate security. So Hmm. I worked for Leo Ryan uh, from San Mateo County for two years there, right at the time that Patty Hearst was. Right. He was brand new in Congress. I'm just curious. I don't remember. I was very young. Um, Was he, he, did he have any uh, involvement or just uh, anything to do with Probably the number one reason that Jimmy Carter a part, uh, uh, this is just my speculation, commuted her. He was the one who really started the whole committee to start free Patty Hearst. He was the first politician to come mm-hmm. out. And then, you know, soon Ronald Reagan, the head of the FBI office here, Cesar Chavez, whose picket line she had walked through, uh, he put together an incredible coalition mm-hmm. uh, to, to get her commuted and get her out of jail. Mm-hmm. He was the central figure in the committee to free mm-hmm. Patty Hearst. Yeah. You know, which, by the way, the family, you know, hugely... It was a lobbying organization, and they they had lobbyists working on it. They did a great job. So that strengthened, answering your question, that strengthened her relationship with her family uh, beautifully. By the way, one of her closest friends, uh, Trish Chobin, her dad owned the bank that they robbed. And Bill Harris just told me, I said, well, did Patty take it because her, her, uh, you know, her close childhood friend dad owned the bank? Oh, no, no, that was an SLA decision. He said it was a democracy. Everybody had one vote. <laughs> the SLA, and they voted to go after this bank. And then, of course, one of the first visitors when she went to prison was Trish Tobin. And her conversation with Trish was recorded, but they didn't know this. And it was used against her in the trial. It was pretty disastrous. You know. Um, did you say how she was caught at event, finally? Uh, believe it or not, the FBI... Uh, after Jimmy Hoffa was really having a hard time because they hadn't found Jimmy Hoffa's body at this point. So they were really under the gun this time. Thousands of uh, interviews and agents all over. They flooded San Francisco. And the way they finally found her was they found out that there was this apartment. They checked all the 
basically all the gas records and the electrical records, and they found out somebody was stealing power at this apartment on Morris Street, which is where she was living. Mm. And they started, you know, that, because, you know, you're not going to sign up for power if you're uh, hiding from the S. S- yeah. So that's how they finally figured it out, you know. Wow. She didn't pay the utility bill, basically. <laughs> it's hard to believe it. Hey, Roger, she was involved in a kidnapping at one point. Right. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah. So she kidnapped with the Harrises, Tom Matthews, a 17-year-old high school student. And here's exactly what happened. So they had to get rid of this hot vehicle because obviously it had been used in the shootout and there were photographs on the security cameras. So they were driving around and they saw this sign. A van for sale parked in the driveway. They knock on the door and they say, could we go for a test drive? And Tom Matthews comes out with the keys and get, they get in and she says, hi, I'm Patty Hurst. Uh, you've just been kidnapped. You know, or, you know, we're, we're, uh, if you don't mind, we're going to we need your car. And he said, OK, you know. And so anyway, they they rode around, you know, and, and uh, during that day. And this was when the police were beginning to surround and they went to a drive in, if you can believe this. And the reason was. When they didn't meet up afterward, if th- things went bad, because they knew they'd abandoned the safe house. That much they knew. They had communication on that level. They went to a drive-in, and they put a like a Dixie cup, a big popcorn cup on top of the car to show them where they were. And the other members of the SLA were supposed to meet them at the drive-in. They watched a, a movie called The New Centurions, and they didn't show up. And that's when they knew things were really mm-hmm. – that something had really badly gone wrong. So – so that was a that was quite a night, and he he later said, in in interviews that it was one of the greatest night you know, greatest nights you know it was amazing. He said Patty was just love you know just wonderful, and boy did that tank Effie Bailey that really really hurt him badly. Uh, so let's see, uh, the first one was in Nor- uh, Northridge in Daly City, uh, January twentieth to March twentieth, uh, and then Golden Gate Avenue. I actually met somebody whose daughter rented an apartment there afterwards. I thought it was a mess. Uh, 1808 Oakdale from April uh, to May 8th. And then uh, 288 Presidia, September 18th. And finally, uh, 625 Morris, and that's where she was captured. 625 Morris, and that's in, in San Francisco. Then we have another map for L.A. And by the way, in the L.A. map, there's two really interesting things. Um, I told you that San Simeon was bombed during her trial. Remember that? Well, they also came back, if you can believe this, they came back to L.A. and they bombed an L.A. police station when nobody, just a car outside. They didn't want to kill anybody. And then they bombed the House of Pancakes. Just, you know, just to kind of show that they were still. Show the man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just to get even. You know. They didn't. They did not like those pancakes. No. <laughs> I don't remember her name, but she was in hiding, and I remember reading a few years ago that. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What's so th- they had some late. You know, when they when she joined the SLA, there were ten members. That's how big they were, but they got a lot of publicity by kidnapping her. So that really made them look bigger than they were. Two of them were in San Quentin because they'd assassinated, were arrested for assassinating this um, school superintendent, uh, and then when they came back to San Francisco. Or, and after the shootout, they worked with Stephen Salaya and Kathy Salaya. And she, Kathy Salaya, uh, changed her name to Sarah Jane Olson and moved to Minneapolis and became an actress, if you can believe this. And uh, lived with her husband, was a doctor, and he had a family. And then I guess America's Most Wanted put something up years later, and they found her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was an actress in Minneapolis at the time she was arrested. It's hard to believe. Wow. Yeah. She, yeah, she went to jail for the one of the Sacramento, the one in Carmichael. There were two bank robberies that Patty was involved with. And one, she kind of was the bag lady for the money and took some of the weapons. And that was the first one. And that was a, the Guild Savings and Loan. Then there was another uh, bank in Carmichael. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Emily Harris's gun went off and a woman who was bringing in a church collection died. And basically, uh, Sarah Jane Olson Kathy Salaya was one of the people uh, that was prosecuted many years later, many years later. And Patty was not prosecuted in that case. There was an attempt at a civil case uh, that was threatened against all of them, and it was settled out of court. And one of the largest checks that was written to settle that was written by Randolph Hearst. Mm-hmm. But Patty was never prosecuted for that. And as I said, in the kidnapping, she pled no contest. The judge in that trial uh, was my grandmother's um, brother-in-law, Mark Brandler. 
And uh, but they the prosecutor actually got rid of him, got another judge on the case. And then uh, after she pled no contest, uh, he decided, well, she's already in jail for the bank robbery. I think we'll just suspend the sentence and put her on probation. It's fascinating how much um, positive attention bank robbers can get if they if there's something charming about their story. Um, I mean, Bonnie and Clyde being <laughs> being an example. It's like maybe maybe except, exceptionally popular in the 30s when everybody would have loved to have robbed a bank themselves instead. Right. Uh, other questions? Okay, I, I have a question about F. Lee Bailey. Yeah, sure. So, so they hire this hotshot lawyer, but he doesn't do a great job, right? Patty thought he, Pat- was, drunk, th- thought he was drunk in the closing yeah. summation, yeah. She wrote that. He spilled a glass of water during his closing summation, and he was just, he was kind of teetering. Yeah. So. And, and she didn't agree with his approach or his way of, of trying to, to, to well, save her from prison? I think he was also involved in the appeal. Um, she just felt that he had really done a bad job. And so when she went to try to get you know, mm-hmm. the uh, commutation, she went to George Martinez, another local attorney. Uh-huh. She just didn't have any faith in him. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, you, you, you knew all these characters as a reporter, and you turned it into a novel. And you, you did it 50 years later. So you, you must have lived with this cast of characters in your head for a long time, in a way. Did you find it comfortable or...? Because um, a lot of them are, a lot of them are pretty crazy. Yeah, uh, there were some some very strange moments with Steve. I was going to say, tell us about you and Steve Weed because that was you you had a relationship with Steve Weed. This is in real life. This is nonfiction, right? Well, he lived with the Hearst during the ransom time. Yeah, and the stories were just amazing. A lot of them are in the novel. Yeah, and the stories are just beyond beyond belief. What was going on in that house? You know, mm-hmm. they were fighting about everything. And then you walk out of your house, and there's all these reporters. But one of the great moments in the case was when Patty announces on April Fool's Day that she's going to stay and fight. You know, that she's decided that her parents have—it's obvious. Rich people, they—you know—they'll do anything to protect themselves, even even to the point of letting you know one of their own, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sacrificing one of their own. She said that. And Catherine Hurst walked out of the house and refused to be interviewed that day. Mm-hmm. And but she did say on the way to the car, she said, uh, "I don't think that voice was Patty. I think Patty's dead." Mm-hmm. And then she got on a plane with Randy, and they flew to Mexico, and they stayed with Desi Arnaz at his estate. Mm-hmm. And that really fried Patty. Uh, even worse, she got another term with uh, the Board of Regents. Mm-hmm. And that Ronald Reagan appointed her to 16 more years after they'd been attacking Reagan, who said that he thought all the people who got the free food, uh, he'd hope there was an epidemic of botulism at the free food giveaway. So that didn't really help her, her effort, you mm-hmm. know, with the SLA. And then Steve was giving a lot of interviews that she hated, you know, mm-hmm. saying things like, well, she wasn't that smart. He was kind of, I mean, literally, I mean, it was just, not in my my book, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, um, but I think she felt pretty frustrated, right? You know, with all. So Steve lived with the Hearst for a while, but he also lived he with you for a while. Lived with me for a long time, yeah. And this is real life, yeah, yeah. And that was a pretty amazing experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd get up about noon, and uh, I remember when we got the check from Valentine. It was a pretty pretty big book contract. I mean, in those days, it was it was a particularly good yeah. contract. And uh, I got his first check, and he came to me, and he said, well, I don't really want to cash this because, you know, it'll look like I'm trying to profit off her, and we still don't know where she is, you know. Um, and he asked me if I could find a way to cash it, and then he found somebody else who would cash it. He didn't want to take it to his bank account. It was like that, you know. And then um, when, he, when he finally decided that the book wasn't favorable enough, even though the publisher wanted it, he, he said to me, he said to me, you know, the problem you, with you is you're writing too fast. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're on chapter nine and I'm only on chapter three. And I said, what do you mean you're only on chapter Well, I'm rewriting it. He was rewriting it with another writer. Mm-hmm. So when, when uh, this went to court, obviously, and we did settle and he paid me off, my lawyer, David Pessinen, who's in the book, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, went through the first three chapters because they had to submit them as part of the deposition. There were 150 examples of verbatim lines that he'd taken from the manuscript. So even though I didn't write the book, I mean, I, I helped him mm-hmm. create the book. And it's it's a nonfiction thing that he then published right. a book later. And With another publisher. Material. Yeah. yeah. Valentine didn't want it. Yeah. 
And and that book you think was just more self-serving? I think he felt there was a chance that Patty would come home and mm. realize the error of her ways. And that, and I was even hiding some of the rugs and things that that, he, that were his property. That mm. you know that was a, a sticky thing because they had a lot of his property that they'd gotten from the estate at Wintoon up north. And that property was pretty valuable. And now that she was out of the picture, was he going to have to put it back into her hands? Because, you know. He hadn't got married to her yet. It's kind of a layaway plan. Yeah, they yeah, yeah right, right, right. So why don't you, this is a very interesting part of the Hearst family, too. Uh, they, they have all this art. Right. Which they bought more than they used. Right. And so it's sitting around, and it's very valuable. And they had a fire sale for the family. For the family. So they sold it for, what, 10 cents on the dollar or something? Never, yeah. Something like that. Layaway plan. To, yeah. to family members. Um, and so Patty, as a 19-year-old, right, got all kinds of this expensive art. Right. But it was kind of on consignment because, guess what? Uh, I actually had this, the trust fund. He he brought a lot of those papers, and he showed me the trust fund papers. She didn't get it till she was 21. So they were kind of holding on to it. Then she got all this money when she was 21. It would be about a half million dollars in mm. present value. And then they could pay for everything. Mm. So Steve was kind of left in the lurch, you know, with this problem. He was a hearse in waiting. He really was. <laughs> and uh, and as, histor- you know, as a historian, yeah. you would appreciate that somebody like this the family kind of felt that there might be a little bit of a gold digger thing going on. Might be. <laughs> so they were a little nervous about, yeah. you know. Um, what happened was Randy, uh, believe it or not, was to the, far to the left of his wife. He was very interested in what was going on around San Francisco. I mean, he saw it. He was involved in philanthropy at uh, Latino schools. He saw they weren't getting the a lot of the things that the, the better schools like his daughter were getting. Mm-hmm. So he was donating money. He hired reporters. Raul Ramirez was one of them. And he brought in and he said, there's a, he said, Raul, he brought him in from the Washington Post as a Latino writer. And he, he said, you know, um, I, there's stuff going on out there. They're looking out the window. I, there's a whole world out there. I don't even know. Mm-hmm. And then when the ransom thing was going on, he was, he was very, very involved in talking to leftists. So he was attracted to these leftist attorneys because he felt they would have a line in to people that could, get to the SLA and they could do a deal that didn't involve, you know, all this money necessarily. You know, the big problem was that the ransom thing wasn't going well. He tried with Patrick Hallinan first, but Patrick was, was in some kind of romantic thing going on up in Napa Valley. So he ended up with Terrence mm-hmm. Kale Hallinan and they had a whole defense. Uh, Vincent Hallinan was kind of involved, the dad. And they the whole idea was, well, we'll cook up this, you know, she was drunk or she would, you know, all this was going on. They, they kind of drugged her and mm-hmm. all that. And then the family got involved and the FBI got involved and the attorney general got involved and his brother got involved and said, you know, this isn't quite, we need, we need a higher class mm-hmm. attorney. Mm-hmm. So. Well, let's go back to the, the SLA's beginnings too. Sure. You, you mentioned that they're just 10 people, just 10 people, but, but they made a big splash because they assassinated the school board president, a, a well-respected yeah, and two, two of their members. Superintendent, yeah. Yeah, and two yeah. of their members ended up going to San Quentin. And, 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 and one of them and is still in, in uh, Pelican Bay up in Crescent oh, really? City. Oh, yeah. so, And, and that, that was why they one of the things that they wanted were those two guys to get back out of yeah. jail. But yep. why did they what, – what's the, the political value of shooting a school uh, superintendent? Right? It was over identity cards and metal detectors, if you can believe. And, you know, the left, just Angela Davis, Jane Fonda, yeah, yeah. Ramparts Magazine that I wrote for here in San Francisco, uh, they ran an editorial. The left was just apoplectic about this. They thought it was a, basically a CIA a, agent provocateur operation. And then their two of their members got arrested, and then the safe house they had unconquered. They tried to set fire, but a lot of their papers were there. Their hit list was in mm-hmm. it. They were just completely, completely destroyed by that. At a part, I was in a radical singing group at the time right. and um we had a party and um some of them were there right didn't like us at all but right they had this young man who had just gotten out of prison and his name was david defreeze <laughs> so that's way at the beginning wow the, the left had nothing to do with them mm-hmm. well you and by the way i drove by soledad today which is where he was when he escaped uh, from prison um, on the way up here, and that 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 was how he got. He was an escaped convict. Escaped convict. Yeah. And and you you mentioned too that Steve Weed uh, was who was he working for, or was it 
was it somebody? I thought I thought that somebody ended up, and I thought it was Steve that ended up being, or was that part of your novel rather than the novel? It's part of the novel. Oh, okay, okay, all right, all right. How did you lawyer this thing? I mean, <laughs> you're expecting Steve Weed to, to sue you for defamation? Oh, oh. Other people? Well, he's already sued me once. <laughs> and we settled. And he got the book and he paid me off. Uh, we didn't charge him for room and board. And somebody brought that. <laughs> um, but I do so want to. encounter Sue still, right? Yeah. I, I do <laughs> want to say this about Steve. Uh, a lot of the inside story of what was going on in the family uh, was very valuable information. I mean, despite the fact that it took me much longer than him to get my book done, um, I did appreciate the fact that the the story of what, you know, they had swamis in there, they had psychics, you know. But I'm really interested in your story because you're talking about Ms. Moon, and that was Patricia Soltizic. According to Romero and Little, she was the trigger person on the murder. She, yeah, that she was the one who actually assassinated, um, you know, you're right. Marcus Foster, and that's an that's an and Little did get out. Russell Little is out. He had he was had a retrial. Um, so there's a big debate about who actually pulled the trigger in, in that that terrible case. Yeah, there's a big debate about almost everything in this. <laughs> no wonder you turned to fiction, right? <laughs> well, we have time for one or two more questions. Anybody want to ask something? Sure. I think it's interesting. Uh, Fifty years later. So I discovered Patty Hearst because of the 88, her, the movie. Right. So that's how I came into it. So what I want to know from you, when did you hear, we live in a day where at the touch of a button, something can go viral. News can get out like that. Right. You were living in Berkeley. Right. When did you first hear about the kidnapping? And then more importantly, when did you, especially as a reporter, realize this is going to have legs? Okay, so I heard about it the same day everybody else did in the front page of her dad's paper when it hit my driveway. And I realized it had legs immediately because I could see that uh, this is the classic damsel in distress story, the captivity narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, the, one of the first bestsellers in the uh, 18th century was about a, a minister's wife who was captured for 12 days by a Native American group. And she wrote a book about it as an instant bestseller. And it's going on forever, th this type of story. A, a young white woman gets kidnapped. Or, or taken. Randolph Hearst was the master at merchandising this kind of story to the point that in one case in Cuba, a woman got arrested in Cuba, a young woman. He sent a reporter to Cuba to break her out of jail and then come home and write a series for his paper, which was a huge hit. So it's kind of ironic, but it was very clear that the Hearst connection was going to turn it into a circus. Yeah. So when did you first hear about it? Triggered a memory here. My best friend Judy witnessed it. The kidnapping. Oh, uh, witness it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. From where? I've got to give her a copy of the book. Yeah. Wow. Where did where where was she when it happened? Uh she lived right near where Patty was. Right. Where, uh -huh. her house. I see. I see. Yeah. Right in the neighborhood. Yeah. 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 I met a woman in Pasadena who's the same age and her, her uh debut uh was canceled. And she said all over California coming out parties, proms and so forth were canceled after this happened. So it yeah. it definitely had legs. Yeah, it really well, caused a lot of. Well, it, it has such legs. I didn't know this earlier. You could have gotten Judy's story. <laughs> it has such legs that we're still here fifty years later. Right? Yeah, yeah, here we are. Um, so, you know, one more question. Okay, great. So, <laughs> I'm actually curious about about your writing process mm -hmm. since you are so expert at all these facts you have all of these great real life facts how do you take all these facts and end up fictionalizing or turning it into a, a novel like how did you make those decisions about what to use how do you turn it from a fact to a fiction well you understand that in the case of a number of these people beginning with the kidnapper and beginning with her lover steve weed I had a great deal of time with them. I mentioned that I went to see the movie you talked about. I went to see that movie with Bill Harris on opening night. We went together. So, you know, and he told me his story. And, of course, Steve spent months telling me his side of the story. And Tom Noguchi talked about what it felt like for the LAPD to not just shoot these guys, but to burn them alive. So the families had to wait for days and days because they had to look at the charred remains and examine them to figure out who died, you know, if one of them was Patty. So I had a lot of firsthand information from people who were central 
you know, right in the middle of the case. And that that was a tremendous benefit because once you get into the mindset of some of the key protagonists, um, uh, it's, it becomes much easier to sort of uh, uh, put together uh, the storyline. And then the parents, remember there, there were all these communiques and that helped a lot with the SLA, but remember the parents were giving press conferences every day. So a lot of the dialogue that was going on, you know, my favorite line in the book, if I may be so uh, vain, is the the the, the um, her mother says in an inter, you know it, it, it's quoted in Herb Cain's column. She she says she's at the Claremont. She's just given up on the whole crazy scene at the house, and she moves into the Claremont. And she said, as usual, the men are calling all the shots, and I just hope one of them doesn't hit Patty. You know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's sort of like. That's kind of the that was kind of her tone mm-hmm. of every time she talked. You know, mm-hmm. she was very, you know, she couldn't believe that Patty went to jail before the Harrises. I mean, yeah. are you kidding me? They wanted to be tried first. That was part of Bailey's strategy, mm-hmm. you know, but it ended up, you know, she was really disappointed. Yeah. So it doesn't take a lot of imagination to to put yourself in their in their mind, in their mindset, so to speak. You know, and Patty, of course, wrote a 400 page book. So there's a lot to base on, on what she's saying. And this whole question you're asking, it's not that far from what a historian does because mm-hmm. they still have to kind of figure out based on the actual material, you mm-hmm. know, from the right. books you write, mm-hmm. take the actual things and think, well, is that all really true? And then you cross check mm-hmm. like my editor did today at the Washington Post. He wasn't taking my word for it that she got in a fight with Paul Schrader. I had to get somebody else to say that, okay? Mm-hmm. So that's where fiction and nonfiction you know, because, um, you know, unlike a lot of the politicians, you know, we can get sued for making mistakes. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, and it happens, you know, it just happened to it just happened to a politician. Well, it was a, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he made a big mistake and he ended up eighty five million dollars short. <laughs> <laughs> so far, if he ever pays it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Things that people said. Well, you just talked about Ms. Moon. I mean, these, all these people have a long history. Angela Atwood had a huge track record. You know, she's the one that knocked on the door. Well, yeah. there's a, a lot of people knew her really well. So there was plenty to base it on. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Well, that was great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 121st year of enlightened discussion. And thanks a lot for coming. Thanks, Roger. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. 